Welcome to Same Surgeon, Different Life, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. This series focuses on demystifying cardiothoracic surgery and presenting the remarkable backstories of surgeons from a variety of backgrounds and in various career stages that have led them to become the face of CT surgery. I'm Dr. David Tom Cook, and in each episode, Dr. Tom Varghese and I will get to know more about our colleagues, the obstacles, the success stories, trade-offs, and pivotal moments that have shaped their careers as well as their personal missions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. I'm Dr. Sandeep Kandar, a thoracic surgeon from Virginia Cancer Specialists, with a message about the importance of referring patients with resectable stage 1B through 3A non-small cell lung cancer to a medical oncologist consistent with national guidelines. I believe that all of these patients should be referred to a medical oncologist early in their treatment pathway. Using biopsy samples taken before or during surgery, medical oncologists should order guideline-recommended molecular testing to help inform therapy decisions. In my opinion, it is important to talk to these patients about recurrence rates after surgery, as well as molecular testing, which may impact treatment decisions for eligible patients. These conversations should happen either before surgery or shortly thereafter. Overall, a multidisciplinary team-based approach may help drive informed decisions so patients can receive the right treatment options for them. This content is sponsored by AstraZeneca. Today, we are thrilled to have Dr. Ryan Hassan, MD, a phenomenal thoracic surgeon, accomplished health services researcher, devoted mother, and an identical twin as our esteemed guest. Dr. Hassan masterfully balances academic medicine, family life, and her contributions to the world of research while showcasing her unique perspective in the field of medicine. With a keen focus on diseases of the lungs, trachea, chest wall, and other critical areas, Dr. Hassan has dedicated her career to providing personalized and technically excellent treatment to her patients. Join us as we delve into her inspiring journey, explore the fascinating influence of her twin connection, and learn how her commitment to innovation, patient-centered care, and her multidisciplinary team at Dartmouth Hitchhawk has shaped her exceptional career. Get ready to be inspired by a trailblazer who continues to break barriers in thoracic surgery, research, and healthcare while remaining deeply committed to her patients and their individual health goals. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here and among such illustrious company as Same Surgeon Different Light. So thank you. Great, great. You know, obviously this is a podcast and it's it's audio, so there's no video. But I can assure the audience that Dr. Hassan uh, has come in second with the best office uh, that is seen uh, in the history of same surgeon, uh, different light. So congratulations on your design aesthetic. Thank you very much. When I heard who was first, I said, I will take that honor any day. So thank you. <laughs> great, great. Well, I, we have a, a wonderful long conversation uh, to... Um, uh, that we will uh, 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 tackle here. Uh, but, you know, in the beginning, I, I want to just acknowledge at the time of this taping, uh, we've heard some really awful news. Our immediate past president, Dr. Sean Grondon, um, has passed away. It was announced that Dr. Grondon passed away. And this has been uh, a really difficult time for the STS community uh, and the STS staff and really the, the cardiothoracic uh, surgical community 
as well as the Canadian healthcare uh, community. Um, Ryan, did, did you know Dr. Grondin? Uh, have you met? And um, what are your thoughts in terms of his, his, the presidency that he led? I will say in terms of the presidency that he led, you know, one of the things that I was able to see is that he was a person of the people. Um, he was very approachable. I think that, you know, if there was issues that we wanted to have discussed or issues brought up, especially with women in thoracic surgery and getting some of our uh, needs and desires um, met in terms of the organization and the representation within the organization, I appreciated his openness and willingness to hear about that. I appreciated the fact that his presence um, wasn't scary to a, a young um, thoracic surgeon like myself, but I felt that I could um, see myself, you know, within his presence. I felt that I could approach him if I had questions or concerns. And I just felt that he was very um, about wanting to move the organization in the direction that it needed to be moved in. I think that he wasn't afraid of doing that. I think he wasn't afraid of taking risks. I think he wasn't afraid of bringing to light things that needed to be discussed. And so I think it's a very sad day. Um, here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, we also lost one of our esteemed faculty in the Department of Cardiology. And I, I think it speaks to physician wellness and taking care of ourselves, realizing that um, our life here isn't forever and that, you know, we have unique opportunities to meet people, to interact with people. Um, I can say that my interactions with him have always been amazing. And I think that he did a lot for our organization and that it just speaks to, you know, take advantage to every opportunity that you have and don't take anything for granted because life is short. And um, I, I really do mourn his loss. I mourn for his family and for his close friends and everybody around him that got to benefit from everything that he had to offer. Yeah, I, I would echo everything that you said. You know, Dr. Grondin was really supportive of our workforce for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, you know, really those efforts only work successfully if there is a mandate from the top. Exactly. And, uh, he definitely felt that for our specialty to grow, um, it should be reflective of the communities uh, that we serve. That you know, there is a, a stereotype of a cardiothoracic surgeon um, who could be pretty gruff and acerbic. Um, yeah, and I think uh, present company uh, uh, is an exception to that stereotype, and Dr. Grondin is also an exception. Uh, to that stereotype, he was just the opposite, um, um, developing uh, um, connections, mentorship, and sponsorship. So it's a sad day in, in, in our, our cardiothoracic surgical uh, community. But, you know, I really, you know, the way you observed Dr. Grondin um, and his uh, attributes really would fit well with describing yourself. Tell me a little bit about your background and and um, and what led you to uh, to do what you're doing now? Where, where did you grow up? Yeah, so I grew up in sunny Riverside, California. So it's in Southern California. 
Um, a majority of my family on my mom's side lived there as well as my dad's. Um, I lived with both my parents. I grew up with a twin sister, as you said before. Um, I like to say that she's the more accomplished one. Um, she's currently an associate professor at University of Michigan. She does has dual appointments in kinesiology and public health um, and really has just worked to literally get the state of Michigan to move um, both in the classroom and out. Um, but I grew up with her. Um, my dad was a insurance salesman and then he turned to financial planning later on in his career. My mom, uh, she had a variety of careers and I loved it. So she actually was a, a physical therapist by trade. And then she was a stay at home mom with my sister and I until we were 12. Um, and then she um, went, to, she was a substitute teacher within our class. So that was interesting. But then she opened up her own bookstore. Um, so we never had a lack of books to read. Um, we would go there after school and on weekends. Um, and she did that for about four or five years. And then she ended up retiring from that and going back to physical therapy. But I think she was somebody that was early in my life that showed me that women can have careers, that they can pivot within their career, that they can do pretty much whatever they want to do and whatever they set their hearts out to do, you know, finding those supportive partners to be by their side to help them do it and finding the support around them is necessary, but she was able to do that and, and had um, gave me a lot of um, insight into what my future career could be. So um, I would say you know, growing up there was great. Yeah. You know, it's fascinating that you mentioned that your mom uh, owned a bookstore and you and your sister spent time in that bookstore. You know, some of these conversations we've talked about academic medicine and um, the need to read uh, large volumes of information and the need to write um, uh, lots of information, whether it's manuscripts or grants and et cetera. How did your experience with growing up uh, in a bookstore owned by your family, which is a unique experience, especially in, in the African-American community. Mm -hmm. uh, did, did that have any um, connection to your career or your career choices? I think it definitely did. Um, my parents, they started us with phonics. At, like we were the hooked on phonics family. So we started that around, I think three or four years of age. And we knew how to read by the time we got to kindergarten. And I think reading was something that I just embraced. I loved reading. Um, I would stay up under the covers, you know, with the flashlight reading, you know, reading on the weekends. I just really enjoyed any and everything. My mom would read to us when we were little. And then that just carried on, you know, throughout high school and college. Um, I think that was helpful, especially when I got to residency and did my research years, you know, doing basic science, learning how to critically read, learning how to kind of shift the focus of your reading to like, what am I getting out of this? You know, what can I learn from this? What did they do right? What could they have improved on as opposed to just the, um, okay, I'm reading for fun now, um, you know, that you may have had before or the, okay, I'm reading to learn information, but not necessarily to critique this information that you may have had in high school or college. So I, I think that was, I know it sounds cliche, but reading's fundamental. Yeah. Um, and it was ingrained in me at an early age, you know, yeah. something, you know, my son is starting to say his first words and, you know, I can't wait to introduce phonics to him, but I, I think it was, it definitely set the stage for me to understand the importance of it and how it'll be necessary for the rest of my life. So I, I definitely think my parents were ingraining in that in me early. And where did you go on to college? So I went to the University of California, Berkeley. Um, it was oh, actually, blue. yes, go blue. Not, not go blue, go bears. 
<laughs> so yeah. I, I, and it's funny because I, I had wanted to go to USC, University of Southern California for like forever. And so I applied to both, got into both. And my mom was like, you're going to Berkeley. You can go to USC for medical school, but you got into Berkeley, you're going. And, you know, I'm thankful that she said that because that was such a great experience for me. I mean, Berkeley has any and everything that you could ever be interested in. And I think coming from the suburbs and going to a place where you can explore so many different things. I took so many different classes in political science, art, history, you know, and then just extracurricular activities. I joined my sorority, Alpha Kappa Alpha, you know, my second year. I just, you know, there was such an enriching time for me, you know, to grow as a person, to develop um, the independent skills that you'll need, you know, later on in life. So I thank my mom for that. She, she helped lead me in the right direction for that. And I did end up going to USC for medical school and love that too. So I mean, you, you mentioned, um, that you, um, uh, you, 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 uh, actually, I'm, I'm, uh, Berkeley, AKA chapter, it was at Alpha New. Row chapter. Row, row chapter. chapter. Yeah, yeah, row chapter. Your That's the chapter. Same, same chapter as my mother. Okay. Yeah. And it's such I, a small world. Yeah, same <laughs> chapter as my mother and same chapter as my sister. I think Alpha New is the grad chapter. Give her a hug for me. Yep. Yeah. Alpha, yeah. No, my, my, mother, my mother passed away a week ago. Oh, no. Um, and um, uh, uh, as we were going through her, her, uh, life history to prepare for her her celebration. Um, uh, it is clear that uh, her time at um, uh, AKA Row Chapter uh, was very important to her, and um, uh, we are looking forward to her Ivy uh, celebration uh, at yeah. her funeral. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, when I hear about Row Chapter, I, I you know. Uh, uh, brings up good memories as my mom has uh, described. So, um, um, but it must have been a little bit of a culture shock uh, yes. coming from Riverside, California. You talk about a suburban community yes. to UC Berkeley, um, which is uh, is in the city of Berkeley, but mm-hmm. a very urban community. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you manage that culture shock? I, you know, I think, you know, so for the first two years, I lived in the dorms and, you know, I actually, the second year, actually the first two years, I lived with one of my soon to be sores or sands that I pledged with. Um, And so I think that was helpful meeting your crew of friends. And it's funny because I was in the dorm with a first set of, there was three of us. It was like one of those, I can't even remember what you call them, but there's three people in a room and, you know, you show up your first crowded. Yes, it was a big room, but you know, and I actually scored it because I had the single bed and then there's a bunk bed. So I actually scored the single bed because my mom got us there at like stupid o'clock in the morning. So you showed up first. Yeah, that's the first rule of freshman year. Exactly. Come early. It's funny, the friends that you meet in the beginning and how you navigate part of your freshman year, and then you actually find your crew in your niche and you find people around you, whether it's your friends, whether it's supportive faculty, whether it's your, you know, sorority or fraternity or whichever organization you're a part of that you actually, you know, become your family, I think, in your home away from home. I think that's what helped me to deal with it. I mean, 
there's definitely growing pains. I know I called home for so many things um, in that first year of college, but to get away from my family um, to and learn how to be independent, I think was extremely helpful. I'd always had my sister by my side and she actually um, was across the United States at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst playing collegiate volleyball because she was the volleyball star. I was the martial arts star. Um, and so we, we actually got to form our own different personalities, which I would say my parents did a great job of cultivating during our middle school and high school years, but we really were, you know, able to form um, our own personalities and become the women that we are today. Um, so it was definitely a shock, but it was a needed shock, you know, I'm trying to prepare myself for when my child decides to go away to college, I will definitely encourage that because I, I, it was definitely helped with my growth. Um, and, and was an experience that I, I can't ever replicate. Now, UC Berkeley is, a, a, is an excellent school um, mm -hmm. with a great reputation, um, and it prepares you for life. I, I'm, I'm a grad myself, and, and I always say that um, UC Berkeley is like educational Darwinism. Yes. So, you know, there is no grade inflation. There's grade deflation. No. Yes. So if, you, if you survive there, then you are uh, can compete anywhere. Uh, but so given that sort of, that academic gravitas for the university, it is less than 2% black African-American for uh, that population and probably even shrinking uh, to a degree. Did that, was, was that statistic daunting for you? How did you reconcile that experience being not only a minority, but a really tiny minority um, and yet, um, uh, utilize the the benefits that you deserve by being a student at a, such a prestigious university. So I think you know that's an interesting point, and it was it was definitely adjustment. My high school, um, there was a portion. So I would say it was probably about twenty percent Black and African American. Then there was about. 40% Latino and Mexican. And then the rest, there was a um, about 15% Asian and then the rest were white Caucasian. So there was a mix. And then there was also some other different ethnicities of smaller numbers, but there was definitely a mix. And I, because a lot of my family had grown up in Southern California. So I went to school with at any given time, four or five of my cousins were there, you know, and some of my older adult cousins actually worked at the high school too. So there was always that support system around you. Whereas you go away to college and you're like, wow, it's just me. I remember my science classes, it really was just me and looking around. And I think, you know, initially I got intimidated by that. I think that um, it's hard to be in a place where you, for the most part, feel supported. I mean, I think, any person you know of, of color can say that there have been some detractors along every point of their journey. I mean, I was told in high school that, you know, like, I don't know why you're applying there, you know, or you should apply here. They have affirmative action. You know, when I was a part of the International Baccalaureate program, I had done really well. I got into every college I applied to, you know, and I did wasn't just applying to like easy places. And so I think Coming to Berkeley was definitely a culture shock. I remember, you know, as I mentioned before, I took classes in almost everything because I had wanted to be a doctor since I was the age of seven. And I finally got to college and was just like, am I sure I want to do this? What do, do I want to do something else? And, you know, even in the classes, I was like, no, nobody looks like me. Like, 
am I sure this field is for me? And so I took classes in a bunch of different things. I knew that I wanted to major in psychology because I had taken an AP class and I was like, this is amazing. And, you know, I still use that degree today, but when it came time to the pre-meds, I remember meeting with one of the advisors and he unfortunately has passed away, but he gave me the best piece of advice. And he was like, listen, you could do whatever you want. Cause at that point I was somewhat discouraged, you know, and I just was like, I don't see anybody that really looks like me that I can identify with, you know, and just, is this the right field for me? Um, and he was like, you can do whatever you want. You know, you know, you like psychology, focus on that degree, graduate, and then, you know, do a post-bac program, you know, and you can finish up your classes there. Cause I had only taken intro to chem and um, organic chemistry. And I loved organic chemistry. I think you either love organic or you love basic chem, but you can't love both. And I actually <laughs> teaching organic chemistry later on down the line. Um, and so I did that and that was great because I was able to enjoy my college experience. I, I, I was able to complete my goals. I think it, doing the post-bac program helped me to mature even more, not only as a student, but as a learner of medicine. It allowed me to focus on my goals too as well. Um, and it also allowed me to find supporters. And I think it was one of the first valuable lessons that I learned along my career is that there will always be detractors, but your job, whenever you want to do something that may not necessarily have the support you need right away, is to find those that will support you. And this find those that see value in what you're doing. And most importantly, find those that see something in you that you can't even see in yourself to say that, like, I bet you could do that and 10 times more than that. And that's kind of what I found with my mentor at UC Berkeley. And then that inspired me to do my post-bac program at Harvard through their extension school and then end up going back to USC for medical school. So. No, as interesting as you described sort of sitting in the lecture hall there and you're looking around and, and there's no one else that looks like you. And you said, well, do I, should I even be here? There is a, a phrase in the sort of DEI space, which I'm, I'm not a big fan of, yeah. uh, which says you can't be what you can't see. And that's kind of like a catch-22. It's like a, yeah. a vicious circle. Well, yeah, there's no one you see there that's like you. But if you don't try to enter that field, then you'll never, there'll never be anyone in that field that looks like you. Exactly. You, you mentioned the, the sort of the effectiveness of that mentor at Berkeley, that guidance person. Uh, did they express empathy or um, understanding of how you might feel sitting in that classroom alone? Um, uh, looking around and no one looks like you? He did, because he was actually black too. So, you know, um, it was nice. And he was just like, I know it's hard coming here. And I know when you're one of the few, but you made it here. And I think that's what you need to remember. And that Berkeley saw something in you, you know, and thought that you would come here and be successful. And so you need to walk into every classroom knowing that and understanding that. And I think, you know, that was helpful to remember because I think, you know, it is, it, I, I agree with you. I don't like that phrase of like, you can't be what you can't see because not everything has to be based on me getting exposure to it, but it does make it a little bit easier. You know, if you see people that follow in your footsteps, you know, when I first was thinking about thoracic surgery, there were only five board certified women in it. And now there's what, 17 or 18 of us, which is still not a lot, but it's yeah. more than what there was. And so, and then speaking of black women, you know, so I, th I think that, um, you don't have to see it, but it does help if you are exposed to it. Now you went on to USC for uh, medical school and how did you get interested in cardiothoracic surgery uh, at USC? 
Yeah, so Tom Demeester was the chairman of surgery and um, you had to do his, it was a whole big hullabaloo in order to apply to surgery. So you had to do his rotation and the ideal time to do his rotation was September. So all of the medical students that were interested in surgery. And I actually came into medical school wanting to do pediatrics. You know, I had wanted to be a doctor since I was seven at like age eight or nine. I was like, I love kids. I want to do this with kids. And so that was what I was set on. And about six months into medical school, I said, wait a minute. Um, I don't know if I can deal with sick kids. You know, I think it, it just breaks my heart. I, I just you know, this, this is I, I, the mental stress of this, you know, are they going to be okay? And I know kids are so resilient and they can get over anything, but then when they don't, you know, that, that just hit me in a certain way that I was like, I'm not sure if I want to do this for the rest of my life. And so I, I kind of was thinking, what should I do? And they had a focus experience in the operating room. And so it was, it was a spine surgery that we were watching. And so like, I looked at the surgeon and I was like, that is a cool job. But I was still like, I'm not sure that I could do all of that. But what about anesthesia? You know, they're taking care of the patient. They're keeping them alive. They have an important role. So, you know, second year of medical school, I was thinking about anesthesia. I did this little mini research project with the anesthesia department, you know, and that was what I was going to do. And it wasn't until third year that and when I was on my surgery rotation that I said, you know, I was looking forward to surgery because I was like, oh, I'll get to see what anesthesia does. But like, as soon as I stepped up to the table, I said, wait, the magic's on this side of the table, not that, that side of the curtain. Like, this is what I want to do. Like, we're actually fixing the problem here. You know, we have the patient in front of us. I think the anatomy. And so that's what initially got me interested in surgery. I think um, Dr. Henri Ford, who is now the president of the ACS, the president-elect, was um, one of our mentors at USC. He was there. He was the chair of surgery at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. And I remember, I think he was either giving grand rounds or doing something. And I was on the rotation. I had only been on for a week, but I was like, who is that man? And I need to go meet him because I had never seen a black surgeon before, except for Ben Carson. And I was like, you know, I, I've got to get to know him. And I remember walking up to him and I'm like, hi, Dr. Ford, my name is Ryan Hassan. And I, I, I'm thinking about being a surgeon. And he looked at me and he was like, why don't I know you? And I was like, well, I'm just a third year medical student. I haven't done surgery yet and I'm, I'm on it right now. And he said, well, do my rotation. You need to come rotate with me at Children's Hospital. I'll show you around. And so like I went straight to the surgery office, signed up, said, please put me on for pediatric surgery. And, you know, he just took me under his wing, you know, gave me all the confidence in the world. And again, was one of those people that saw in me more than I saw in myself. He said, you know, I want you to have my job one day. And I said, okay, but does it have to be in pediatrics? Cause I don't know if I can deal with the kids, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but it, it just, um, you know, that experience and doing Dr. Demeester's rotation, I think that's what initially sparked my interest into doing thoracic surgery. I did an esophagectomy with him and just was like, this anatomy, we're in the belly, we're in the chest, we're around the heart, the lungs, the esophagus, like we've almost touched almost every important organ in the body. And I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. And, you know, back then we had a lot of responsibility. So we came into round at 4.30 in the morning. We would leave at 10 o'clock at night. I remember I was, I was just telling one of the med students I mentor right now that like one time I left at 10 o'clock and then came back into the hospital at 2.30 because we had a visiting professor and we had to be done with rounds by 4.30 so that we could round with our resident, then round with the fellow, then round with the attendings and then go to the professorship. But 
I loved every minute of it. And I was like, we are like taking care of patients. You know, we had to present our ICU patients and this was as medical students. And so I think both of those experiences, meeting Dr. Ford and having him believe in me and then rotating with Dr. Demeester and seeing the field of thoracic surgery, the patients we were taking care of, the anatomy, um, and realizing like, this is kind of the coolest thing ever because we're in all parts of the body and we are actually curing cancer um, is what initially got me interested into both surgery and thoracic surgery. No, it's interesting um, as you bring up uh, Dr. Ford, you know, you know, Henri Ford is a giant in our field. Um, uh, he's the, uh, the uh, Dean at, at uh, University of Miami now. Uh, and as you mentioned, the president elect of the American College of Surgeons. Um, and there's always a discussion, how do you find mentorship and, and what is an effective mentor? And in, in, your, in your story, I, I see two key points. One is uh, Dr. Four was willing to mentor you. Um, and the second point is Dr. Ford had no idea that you existed until you came up and introduced yourself to Dr. Ford. Mm -hmm. And uh, one thing uh, that's important to note about mentorship is that that a mentor may not find you, but you need to find a mentor. Mm -hmm. And that's and, and a that's proactive I, process. Yeah, I mean, I try to st stress that to medical students or those interested in surgery right now is like, be proactive, you know, like, I'm so thankful that day that I got up the courage said, go talk to this man, go talk to this man. Like I was waiting for the end of his speech. And then I was at the aisle and I was just like, I just like basically ran down there like, hi, I'm Dr. I'm Ryan Hassan, you know, same thing with my research mentors. So or when I was at Brigham and Women's for my uh, general surgery residency, I was thinking about going into the lab and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I knew I was debating between thoracic and surgeon and Monica Bertinoli had a basic science um, lab. And so I went up to her and, you know, I, I was all bright eyed and bushy tailed. And I said, Dr. Bertinoli, I want to do basic science, some clinical on the side and then get my MPH. And she was like, absolutely not. <laughs> she said, I can give you a great basic science career. You know, most people actually take three years. So if you only do two, you know, I will make sure that you get and learn what you need to know, but understand that a lot of people take three years and then even then some and get a PhD, but you can learn what you need to know in my lab. But I need you to be 100% committed to this. And I need you to understand that if you don't do this, you're kind of closing a door on your career. And you are very young in your career. And I'm not necessarily sure if you want to do that. You can always go and do clinical research and you can always go and get your MPH, but you are a resident. And when you go back, you won't have time to do basic science. You're not gonna have any time during fellowship. And as an attending, it's too late. Nobody's gonna wanna teach you. So you could take this opportunity now um, or you can do not, you know? And I think that she gave me an important lesson. You know, she's now head of with the NCI. So um, never close a door on your career unless you absolutely have to and given it thought, but keep those doors open because you never know where it may help you. I think those two years in her lab really helped to um, uh, help me to grow as a researcher. I learned how to critically read those articles. I learned how to set up experiments. I learned the basics of science and the scientific method and coming up with a hypothesis. I mean, stuff that you always knew, but really putting it into action. She made sure that I was productive. And so I came out of that with six publications, which is a lot from basic science. And they were good, like in cancer and cancer research, not just 
you know, in, in, in these other journals, but they were good stuff. And so I think, you know, like you said, it's taking that first step. I scheduled a meeting and said, Dr. Burton only, can I please work in your lab? You know, with Dr. Ford, I was like, hi, I'm Ryan Hassan, taking that first step and not being afraid to do that. And I think my dad always told me the worst somebody can tell you was no. And then you just find somebody that will tell you yes. And yeah. I've, I've tried to remember that when I have daunting situations, you know, and figuring out, okay, you know, if they tell me no, then that means I got to find somebody else, but at least I've exhausted that possibility and not being afraid to exhaust that possibility or explore it is, has been key. And help you with realistic expectations in terms of what you're able to do uh, yep. from a, a, a trusted source, right? Because, yes. you know, you don't want to, a person have ulterior motives to, to limit what you can do. Um, you know, and to unpack this a little bit, you know, you're a California person, um, born and raised in Riverside, uh, UC Berkeley, Nor NorCal for uh, college, then back to SoCal from medical school. But then you went on to do residency at one of the most traditional general surgery programs uh, in the United States uh, in a city, um, Boston, um, which, you know, coming from experience, I'm a Californian as well, who spent 10 years there, is really a black box uh, mm -hmm. for Californians. And it, much of the way, many uh, of us, especially the generation who were our parents, uh, their view of Boston is something that's frozen in the 1970s uh, mm -hmm. view of Boston in the time of, of you know, busing and the strife that was uh, emblazoned upon the national media. Did you have qualms about uh, heading to uh, Boston or did the, the, the traditional and the, the impressive, impressive opportunity that Brigham and Women's Hospital represented overwhelm all of that? It, it totally overwhelmed all of that. I was like, this is Harvard and this is Brigham. I remember when I got the invitation to interview, I was like, oh my gosh, this is it. And, you know, I just, I remember telling Dr. Ford, I was like, this is my number one. And like, I went and interviewed and I was like, this is my number one. I scheduled a second look. And I remember it was a crazy situation because my flight got canceled. And um, my chief resident, Brian Williams, he was the one I was assigned to. He was just like, okay, um, well, and my flight kept getting delayed, delayed, delayed. And finally I was taking the red eye and I was like, gonna get in at 6.30. And he was like, well, m, &M starts at seven. If you could try to be there by eight o'clock, um, that would be great. And then you could just spend the day and then you can go home. And I was like, okay. And so, you know, I got on that red eye, rushed to the airport, changed my clothes really quick, or rushed to the hotel, changed my clothes really quick, got there for grand rounds and was like, this place is outstanding, you know, and I got to spend time with the residents, the faculty, you know, and it just, I think that just was like the opportunity, you know, I had done different sub eyes in different institutions and I had really actually wanted to go to New York because I was like, New York's just the place to be. But when I interviewed at Brigham and when I went back for the second look, I just said, you know, I'd be missing out on something if I don't come here. I didn't know what that something was, you know, I couldn't put a name on it. But I just, you know, that was the thrill for me. And, and it, it, I think it provided me with an amazing opportunity. It's like, nothing's handed to you at Brigham. You have to work for it. You've got to ask, you've got to make the connections, but those connections are amazing. 
there have gotten me so far in just everything. Um, those have been some of my strongest mentors and supporters, you know, the thoracic department there, you know, David Sugarbaker was the chair at that time. There was Dr. Bueno, Dr. Swanson, Dr. Menser, Dr. Jacklich, you know, like they're all still there. Dr. Wee, you know, Dr. Duco, you know, getting exposure to all of them and working with them. I mean, they're the reasons why I decided to finally go into thoracic surgery. Um, and so, you know, cause I was thinking about surgeon for a while and I think, I, two things happened. My grandfather unfortunately passed from pancreatic cancer. And I said, okay, I can't do this every day and all day. And I'm not going to be a surgeon. Uh, sur I'm not going to be a surgical oncologist and not do Whipples. And I think that the other thing was just, you know, the patient population. I loved thoracic patients. And I said, you know what? People do a little bit better when they can't breathe than when they can't eat. So, you know, we can fix that. So, because eating such a vital part of our community. I mean, we meet people for brunch, for breakfast, let's get coffee, Christmas dinner, you know, like all these different traditions. And so um, I think all of that combined was what helped me to sail me on Boston. I think my experience in Boston, I came there with an open mind. You know, I think that I was able to meet friends inside and outside of residency. It's where I met my husband, you know, literally on the streets of Boston. Um, one night, you know, he was with his friends. I was with my friends and the rest is history. Um, so I think that, you know, it has a lot of good memories for it. For me, I think that, you know, there are still parts of Boston that are a little suspect. And I think that you have to be willing to find your community, but also be willing to step outside of your com community and see what Boston has to offer. My husband had lived in Boston for 30 years, you know, and so that's what he knew. We still go back there, we're like we're going in next month for the Boston holiday pops. You know, there's just traditions that we have there. Um, and so I think definitely the thrill of Brigham overshadowed the history of Boston. And I had never lived on the East Coast, but my sister was also still in Massachusetts because she ended up staying at University of uh, Massachusetts Amherst for her PhD and her MPH. So that thrill was also there because I'll be closer to my sister now. So I think all of that overweighed what I could possibly be facing there. And then when I got there, I, I, it just it, it surpassed my expectations. And then you went on to Ohio State for I did. fellowship I did. and uh, uh, developed your cardiothoracic training there. Mm -hmm. And then you came back to New England uh, mm -hmm. at Dartmouth. Mm -hmm. And you know, as a, uh, a new graduate at the time, uh, this is 2018, um, what was your checklist that made you decide that, that had Dartmouth rise to the top? What, what did you need uh, from a, a, a position that that you felt was required to launch your career? Yeah, so it's actually interesting. So I learned about the job when I was at Mayo. So I, I did, so it's, it, my whole cardiothoracic surgery is so interesting. So I applied for a fellowship. You know, Dr. Higgins was the chair at the time at Ohio State and Dr. Merritt were also there and they recruited me heavily to go there. And then in the time between I matched and I matriculated, Dr. Higgins got the job at Hopkins, which I was like extremely sad for, but then immensely happy for. And I was like, you can't be mad, it's, it's, it's Hopkins. So, you know, he got that job, but then the, the, the thoracic section at Ohio State kind of fell apart. Um, so there was, um, Dr. Ross was the chair and there was other, Dr. Vincent was there too as well. And there was a couple of others that were there that actually 
had left. And so it was just Dr. Merritt and Dr. Moffat groups who were amazing, you know, and helped me to get a start. But I was just like, wait, I want to do thoracic. And so Dr. Crestanello was nice enough to secure me a rotation at Mayo Clinic. And I went there for part of my training um, because I was just like, you know, when I finish at Ohio State, I'm going to be I'm going to be able to sit for the boards from a cardiac standpoint, but I won't have gotten all of my thoracic experience. And I, I want to do thoracic. Like I like oncology. I love cardiac surgery. I love the art of it, but it just, you know, thoracic was what really, you know, I, I wanted to do. And so I went there for three months um, during my first year of fellowship at Ohio State and just fell in love with the program, fell in love with all my mentors there. And Dr. Shen invited me back. He was like, hey, when you're done, we'd love to have you back for a fellowship. And I said, oh my gosh, yes, this is exactly. So I went there and then um, had a great time. I mean, uh, six attendings that showed me six different ways to do things. And I'm still close with all of them, Dr. Blackman, Dr. Weigel, Dr. Cassifee, Alan, Shen, you know, Dr. Nichols, they all just kind of embraced me. And it was Dr. Shen, who was my program director, who told me about the job because he had gone to Dartmouth. And he was like, hey, they're hiring. And so I said, okay, you know, I, I, I you know, I'd heard of Dartmouth, it, it's right there. And, um, and so when I went, you know, in terms of the places that I, things that I was thinking about, I was like, okay, I definitely want a supportive chair. I need somebody that's going to understand what my dreams are and my goals are and not be afraid of that. I think when I was interviewing for fellowship, that was the first time where I said, I want to do this, 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 and this. And some people were like, okay. And then others were like, mm, I don't know. And I was like, I need to go to a place that can see what I want to do and take that tenfold. And, you know, and so I found that here in my section chief, David Fenley, like he sat me down and was just like, what do you want? And how exactly do you want to do this so I can help you get everything that you need to be successful? You know, I knew that I wanted to get my MPH. Those words from Dr. Bertinoli was like, you can get your MPH later. And so I said, I really want to do this because I think that that will help my research. And so I was able to do that. I wanted to have partners that I could work with and like the four of us. So it's myself, Dr. Finley, Joseph Phillips, Timothy Millington, and myself, all four of the, all three of them. I was just like, when I sat down and interviewed, I was like, okay, I could ask any of you for help. You know, I, all of you were supportive. You all look to me, you know, as being a partner for you. And I think that we just created a niche here where we all work extraordinarily well together. I think Dr. Finley did a great job of figuring out that, okay, there are certain people that want to do certain things. One of my partners just likes to operate. Like he just wants to be the surgeon and like bring in the revenue, you know, whereas Dr. Phillips and I, we both love research. He's more basic. I'm more, you know, health services um, research, um, you know, and then Dr. Finley's our chair. And so finding that group where we can all work, do great clinical work to meet the needs of our patients here. I think those were the things that I wanted to do. And that's what I found here when I came to Dartmouth and a place where I could grow and mature, but have supportive people around me that could help me meet those goals and, and take them to a whole nother level, which is, I feel like what's happened since I've got here and why I'm still here four years later. You know, there's always a discussion of um, when we, when you look at diversifying our workforce, right? So faculty, <laughs> Because uh, you know you're a, a relative unicorn, a um, black woman, cardiothoracic surgeon, uh, left-handed, left-handed. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and academia uh, with 
the, the second best office design in the <laughs> same surgeon, different light. Um, you know, there's always, uh, it's, it's not just the ability to recruit people, it's the ability to retain them as well, mm -hmm. right? So, and that's where the inclusion aspects of DEI uh, comes in. So the diversity is, is the ability to recruit and the inclusion is to create an environment where people don't want to leave. And uh, oftentimes what I find uh, in, in, you know, what uh, constitutes a successful uh, diversity strategy is that sometimes we get lost on what are people's goals, right? Um, I, I have not encountered somebody yet who said, you know, my goal is to be a black academic surgeon. I have everyone I've encountered have told me that their goal is to be an academic surgeon and to be a successful academic surgeon. And therefore, if you want to retain folks, then you provide them with an environment that really allows them to achieve their professional goals and success. And it sounds like Dartmouth has done that for you. Mm -hmm. I would say a thousand times over. I think that, you know, um, it's funny because, you know, when I talk with my boss, he's just like, you know, I saw your name, Ryan Hassan. I was like, she, she couldn't, I was expecting an Irish gentleman, to, you know, to come in the door. And then I saw you and I said, okay, let's go. And he's just, you know, I think one of the things that he's always been mindful of is that, you know, um, who I am as a person, I am a thoracic surgeon, but I'm also a black woman, you know, I'm also, you know, I, for a while there at the hospital, the only black woman physician in the entire hospital, I'm still the only black woman and black person in our department of surgery. And so I think that he was mindful of exactly what you said, that it's not just about recruiting her and saying like, oh, what do you want to do? Oh, we can provide you this, this, and this, or we can give you this out. You know, it's about how do we keep her here? How do we cultivate her interests? How do we not, you know, put her into a box that she may not necessarily want to be in or is the direction that she necessarily wants to go in? What are her interests? What are her husband's interests? You know, like, what, how can we help? You know, I've been to his house more times than I can count. You know, all of us in, in terms of my partners, we know each other, we know each other's families, you know, and I think that's the part that has helped me to stay here for as long as I have, you know, we each all look out for each other. If any of us needs anything, the other three are willing to step up. You know, when I went out on maternity leave, you know, my boss was like, how long do you, are you taking? I said, three months. And he's like, great. You know, when I told him I was pregnant, he gave me, jumped up and gave me a hug. I'm sure he was probably like, finally, you know, but, um, you know, it's, it's that kind of support that you get and knowing that no matter what comes to us, COVID's been tough. It's been tough for a hospital. I think it's been tough for our department. I think it's been tough for everybody everywhere. And people are still struggling with the effects of COVID. You know, here up at Dartmouth, it's hard for us to find nursing staff. We have a huge pavilion that we're gonna open, but it's hard for us to find staff to fill it. And so there's definitely constraints on the system, but I think that our section and most importantly, our section chief, has made sure that we as a unit are good and that we can keep going out and doing good work. And, you know, we kind of thrived during COVID because we couldn't stop operating. Um, we definitely had to cut back. I mean, we can't just go full steam, but cancer doesn't stop. And, you know, people with 
you know, even non-cancer issues that have emergent thoracic issues, we can't say no. And so, you know, and despite that, we're still trying to, you know, break barriers, introduce new things, new clinical trials, all of that stuff. And so I think having that encouragement, that support from above is what's caused us to thrive. I think understanding who I am and what my needs are now and knowing that they're different now than they were four years ago and will be different in the future, you know, it has been what's helpful in terms of the inclusion aspect and, you know, helping me to feel welcomed and to stay welcomed and wanting me to stay. You know, you talk about that support from above and how your, uh, uh, Dr. Finley was so excited to find out that you were, you, you were pregnant and you have a, a, a brand new, uh, wonderful young son who, um, I, I think you've inserted into the call schedule for my, uh, uh, understanding. Um, and, you know, we talked earlier about stereotypes and, you know, we, we discussed, um, our immediate past president, Sean Grodin, who, who, uh, passed away, unfortunately, um, you know, rec recently to this, uh, recording, um, and that he was the antithesis of the, of the cardiothoracic stereotype, you know, uh, friendly where the stereotype is, uh, you know, acerbic and um, mentorship where the stereotype may be uh, siloed. Um, there is a stereotype of a cardiothoracic surgeon as being male mm -hmm. and, and of the cardiothoracic surgical community being uh, not the type of career environment for a young woman who's growing a family. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you are the antithesis to that stereotype. It, is this a, a profession that is amenable to um, raising a family and, and, and um, um, being a, a, a young woman in that um, stage of life? Mm -hmm. I think it's, Ian, yeah. And it's just having that support around you. You know, I think for all of the trainees or those that are in residency and fellowship, you know, with, especially with that first job, but with any job, you know, looking around at your partners, I think looking around at what's the quality of life of the people in the division, are they happy? I think that, you know, that is one step ahead, you know, that you can take to help secure your future and secure your own happiness. I think part of it takes, you know, when you're looking for a partner, making sure you're finding that person that's supportive, making sure that they're understanding to the fact that like, okay, sometimes I'm going to get called in and it may be at the worst possible time, you know, especially now that we have a child, my husband and I have to juggle a lot of things. Luckily we have, you know, each other, we have a support system, you know, my parents come in, you know, his family. So we have things in place, but that helps too. I think giving back, I would say is the biggest thing that I can do right now. I mean, I think, you know, just sitting here talking to you, the amount of people that have come into my life in some shape or form that encouraged me or inspired me or supported me or mentored me to get to where I am right now, I wouldn't be here without those people, plain and simple. I mean, don't get me wrong. My parents were like my biggest supporter. It was never a question of, are you going to college? It's like, where are you going to college? <laughs> you know, and what are you going to major in? Because that it was, education was such a big deal in my family. And my grandpa, when he finally passed away, he was like, I feel like I can go, you know, my kids, all my grandkids are college educated and they're ready to meet the world. Like my job is done here. And so, 
I think, you know, having that foundation was great, but then also meeting people along the way that support that, meeting people that have already broken those barriers, you know, that um, are, are, are willing to give back, but even just be an example, you know, for those of us that are still coming along and then me as myself, you know, making sure, you know, I'm the third and fourth year surgery uh, student advisor. I'm also the clerkship director for those rotating on thoracic surgery. And then I also, you know, after graduating from my MPH, I developed a DEI curriculum for our public health school because I said, I need to, I need the public health school to understand that DEI is important and we cannot promote public health if we're not keeping this in mind. We're not being good stewards of health. You know, the world is how it is. There's people that look like me, there's people that don't look like me, but we need to be capable and willing to serve everyone and know how to do that in a, in a um, supportive fashion. And so, yeah, it takes a lot to get here. I think you don't have to see it, but you do have to believe in it and you have to find others that believe in you. And then once you start to get there, I've by no way made it, but I'm in a position to where I can give back to those who are coming behind me, um, not only because it's what's right, but it's because it's what's necessary in order for us to cultivate the future leaders of the future that don't necessarily fit the stereotype. You know, I'm a black woman, left-handed, like I have a child, you know, like cardiothoracic surgeon is probably not what comes to mind if you put up my picture next to many different others, but here I am. And hopefully this shows other people that they can do it too. Where's thoracic surgery going from your perspective? What, what is the future uh, of our specialty? I think it's going everywhere and I love it. I think that, you know, at the heart of thoracic surgery, there will always be a place for open procedures. You know, the things that I saw when I was coming up as a medical school, but the way the advances that we've made in robotics, the advances that we have made specifically like in lung cancer and even esophageal cancer, we have a way to attack this disease before it even starts to when it's advanced stage four, you know, lung cancer screening, which was my baby, you know, that even though it's underutilized, it's starting to catch on. And I think that we are starting to cultivate leaders that are pushing for that. We're yelling from the top of our lungs, screening saves lives, you know, we're figuring out how to get out to the people, you know, here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, we're um, creating a mobile lung screening program, you know, to get out to our rural communities here. So we're attacking that early stage disease. You know, we're looking at that. What are our surgical techniques? Do we necessarily need to do a lobe? You know, we have the new landmark study that come out with sub-lobar resections. And what will that mean for patients that can't necessarily tolerate a lobe, but can tolerate a resection? You know, surgery saves lives. And, you know, if we can expand the patients that can undergo an operation, that's great. I think teaching those with advanced disease, with all the different trials that have come out, immunotherapy, you know, we are getting to the point where we're increasing that disease-free survival and that overall survival. And then even with our stage four patients, some of the therapies that we have for them rival those that we have for breast cancer. And patients are living longer, not just living longer, but also having quality life in the life that they're living. And so we have kind of attacked that from every different angle. We're starting to do the same thing with esophageal cancer, you know, with the, you know, tried and true like adjuvant treatment for those with residual disease with nivolumab. And I, th I think we just are taking the field and just 
personalizing it and revolutionizing it in every single way, but then holding on to those basics. I think that it's funny because in cardiac surgery, everybody said like, oh, it's going to be gone in 10, 15 years. And no, it's not. There will always, you know, even with TAVR, like people said, oh, TAVR, that's going to take over. But no, like for younger patients, maybe just a surgical AVR is the best thing for them, you know, because we want them to have another 40, 50 years on earth if possible. Um, but we've come a long way with robotic surgery and with TAVR and with, you know, combining with our cardiology colleagues to not just have them take over our field, but work together with them. So I think, you know, the options are limitless. There are so many different avenues that you can pursue within both cardiac and thoracic surgery, you know, to help advance the field forward. We're at the same time, we're seeing better outcomes. People are living longer. We're able to, you know, help more patients. It, it's just, you know, when you sit and think about how far we've come, even in the last five to 10 years, it's crazy but it's exciting. And I think we have so much more to go. And I encourage all the leaders that are interested in this, find your research interests, you know, or if you're not interested in research, find your clinical interests and teach the residents, but, you know, coming behind you of these new techniques that we have, because there's so much that we can do to cultivate the leaders for tomorrow. We're not, it's not going anywhere. The field's not, it's here to stay. And not only have we like quintupled the fields that people can go to and the subspecialties that people can specialize in, but we're delivering much better care to patients and it's only getting better and better as we keep doing what we're doing. So I think that's exciting. You know, I, I love operating, but then I also love the research aspect because that kind of gives the, you know, full circle picture to like, what are we really doing? We're doing these cases every day where we help these individuals, but how are we helping the population that needs our services? And, you know, that's how I find joy. But I, I, th I think we've got a great future ahead. And, you know, to any trainees that are thinking about going into this field, you are making the right decision because you will find something within this field that you love and can help to move the field forward. Well, as you say, the options are limitless. And I think that's an apt description uh, of your career, which is limitless. Uh, Dr. Hassan, Assistant Professor of Surgery, Section of Thoracic Surgery, uh, accomplished surgeon, clinician, family person, mom, and twin. Thank you very much uh, for this uh, 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 wonderful episode of Same Surgeon, Different Light. This has been Same Surgeon, Different Light, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag, the face of CT surgery. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.